We're going to read Ephesians um, 6. It's selection 54 in the back of your um, pew Bible on page 1069. Um, we're going to read it as a re- responsive reading. Um, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at each portion of um, the whole armor of God. So in doing so, we're going to repeat the reading of this as we pick out portions of it. Uh, but before we do, let us uh, pray. Almighty, gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your holy word, grant that our hearts, freed from worldly affairs, may hear and understand your holy word with all diligence and faith, so that we might rightly discern your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, it's not an uncommon story. Um, someone comes to the church, they get excited, they get involved. Uh, They're part of most of what's going on, very committed, even officers at times, and then gradually seen less and less. Sometimes an event happens in life, not uncommon for someone who wants their kids in church after kids graduate, move on, decide there's less of a reason and they're seen less and less. Someone reaches out to them and says, we hadn't seen you, and there's always a good excuse, some kind of vague excuse. And eventually they're seen less and less so that it's the rare time you do see them. And they drift on. They they never really have said, "I've, I've left the faith, I denied Jesus. But in truth, their participation, their worship, it's hard to believe much prayer is going on. Much conviction is being held by someone who is not uh, worshiping and, and exercising their, their faith. Or a, a child who has shown um, um, a lot of progress and, and model part of being in the church uh, goes to college, finds a professor who raises some questions about human origins or uh, casts some doubt on the validity of Scripture 
and um, a young man who is anxious to um, have any excuse to um, throw off some of the uh, restrictions of the faith in relationship to um, what they can do, finds any question a good excuse, and they go away. Or uh, I've, I've been frightened by the number of those I saw in ministries, people I went to seminary with, who or uh, well-known ministers who seem to be doing good, seem to be standing firm, and then towards the end of ministry, things come out that horrify you. And you wonder, how long have they been living with lies? How long have they been deceiving others uh, about their true life? In other words, it's not uncommon that those who appear fervent or consistent or passionate become less and less involved, more interested in their recreation, get to the place where they don't miss it. If, if Facebook views was any indication, first few weeks we were shut down, I was like, wow, there's a lot of people watching, or Facebook lies, either way. Then fewer and fewer, and you wonder where they've gone. This happens with any expression of Christianity. We all know people who were involved in church and who have left. No one says, well, I just found it a lot easier to sleep in on Sundays and what they do is they say, well, there's a lot of hypocrites there. They find some reason to be kind of morally high ground about the issue. But the truth is they've fallen away. Happens with every denomination. But I wonder if we might be particularly prone to giving ourselves false comfort in a religious um, environment that we're in where so many believe a parody of the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Uh, we've replaced the view, the truth, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. And that has been exchanged for a superstitious idea of once saved, always saved. The idea that if a decision was made and you firmly believed at one point that you really don't have to worry about with the rest of your life. You've raised your hand at a meeting. You've signed a card, and you are guaranteed to go to heaven. The rest of your life doesn't really matter because that's the way grace works. We need, as people who firmly believe that if one has been given the new life in Christ and has saving faith, they will endure to the end, we need to remember the corresponding truth that only those who continue to the end have true saving faith. It is only a faith that endures, that is faith that shows evidence of a new creation. And so we see those who have been baptized, and that was the last time they were here. We've seen those who um, walked forward at an altar call and the rest of the week looked exactly like the week before they went forward. We all know those who kind of believe they're in because their parents or their grandparents went to church, and somehow they've inherited that status of election. We know those who felt emotional and maybe even shed tears at a youth um, campfire meeting and raised their hand to say they love Jesus. 
but do not hold the faith. Do not stay firm with the faith. It made no change in their life. There's no evidence of fruit fruit in their life. There's no change in a love for God's people or seeking obedience. So in other words, all of these, we see evidence of what is not saving faith that leads to obedience and love for other believers, but leads to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was part of a movement to oppose Hitler, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. This is from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. It is grace without price, grace without cost. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, an intellectual assent. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Do we not see cheap grace all around us? You might be tempted to look at someone else. Um, You might look at someone and you think of that you can kind of judge. You might be thinking of loved ones that you think of with anxiety. Uh, I want us to certainly pray for those, certainly look at ways to share and to encourage, but let Paul speak to us. Let's not look at others. Let's look at ourselves. Either in judgment or anxiety, we we look to ourselves and ask, do we hold and take comfort that nothing can separate us from the love of God? As Roman 8 says, yes. But also, do we hold to the warnings that are equally in Scripture? Let anyone that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Do we hear the warning of Jesus that not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven? To hear the command that Paul gives, stand. He's telling us this is what the faith is, is to stand firm. We can't take an understanding of God's grace as an excuse to be passive to lie down. We have to stand. We can't take the idea of God's um, grace as an excuse that we're we're passive and grace just happens to us. We take grace and it's to be a motivation for us to stand firm. Four times in a few verses, Paul tells us to stand. We put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand. Uh, We have a spiritual war, therefore we take up the armor, he repeats in verse 13, so that you can withstand. It's the same concept, you're standing against this. And then having done everything to stand firm. And then in verse 14, he's going to begin enumerating each piece of armor, and there he says, stand, therefore taking up this. So what does it mean for us to stand? As we think about using this armor of God's gifts and graces, we're not just looking at, oh, look how wonderful my shield is. Don't I have a nice sword? Isn't this great? We have a purpose, and that purpose is that we might stand against the assaults of the enemy. 
There is no excuse for complacency or being passive. The armor is there to be used. It's so that we can stand against the assaults that come against us from our spiritual enemies. I'm going to look at three areas where we have to stand. One is in the area of truth and doctrine, what we believe, what we hold to, what we confess. Um, The temptation is always to give ground. Here's what we believe, and there's always pressure around us that says, you Christians really believe this. And there's always the temptation for us to say, you know, the, the people around us would like us a lot more if we didn't hold to these really weird beliefs. You know, a lot of times it's, it's been, do you really believe in supernatural? Other times it's really, do you believe ethical things should, are really that important to God? Aren't, aren't we kind of mean for this? Uh, others are, do you really believe in grace? You don't have to try and do and work. There's always areas where those around us have questions, and so we want to retreat, give ground, be, be more accepted by people around us. So let me, let me be clear. I'm not talking about rooting out error anywhere. You know, we can hunt for where somebody has something wrong. And I'm not talking about attacking others in the faith. I'm talking about standing firm and not retreating from a world to be appealing to unbelievers. We don't throw out revealed truth of God's word so that people who reject God will like us more. There's always going to be something in that we believe that the world around us finds ridiculous or evil or how could you possibly hold to this? And so we, we stand firm at whatever point that is being contested at any moment. And it changes decade to decade, year to year. Um, there's always something. And we have to be grounded in what Scripture teaches and hold to these things and stand. So we do that by studying. We spend time trusting God's Word and learning God's Word and knowing God's Word so we know where there is truth and where there's error, but also by seeking out answers to our doubts. We're all going to have questions. We're all going to have doubts. We're all going to have things of, do I understand this right? How, how can God really do that? And all of this should lead us to ask questions. So I encourage you, if you have questions, this should be a place to raise them. You should never be able to, we should never have somebody come in and say, um, how, do you, how do you believe this part of Scripture? You know, is this true? Or, you know, I, I heard this somewhere. What do, what do we think about this? This should be a place where we can scratch our heads together, go to Scripture, and, and question and come to an understanding of truth. But too often I see the mere raising of a question as an excuse to abandon the faith or abandon a truth. That just the number of people, if they don't like something in Scripture, just want to toss it off to, oh, there must be a transmission issue. Maybe it's not translated correctly. It's like, if you don't like it, you find any reason to do away with it. And, and even just raising the question about something that someone thinks we believe is something people can use to say, well, it really doesn't hold up. It's not really a reasonable faith. If you have doubts, seek answers. We'll seek them together. The second area we're tempted to back off is we're tempted to fall down in the face of temptation and sin. Too often we're called to believe without repenting. Too often we're 
want to trust but make no changes. We want to continue loving the sins that we love. Um, we don't turn away from activities that we know are going to lead us to death. Rather, we, we kind of use the excuse, hey, we're all sinners. Isn't that what grace is for? And we continue to do the things that we know God is not pleased with. How many times, I wonder, do, do we hear someone, we use the phrase, someone struggles with the sin. You know, I struggle with pride. I struggle with lust. I struggle with greed. How many times does that really mean this is the sin I do the most? There's no struggle if you're not setting up structures to keep yourself from sinning. There's no struggle if you keep going to places you know are going to lead you to that sin. There's no struggle if you're not working to overcome those sins. So the wonderful image that came to mind was rather than sheep fleeing from the lion, too many of us are fainting goats. The first sign of sin and temptation, oh, we roll over. I just, I just, my will is so weak. Are you actively seeking ways to stand, to fight against sin? If your issue is greed, are you looking for ways to give? A good way to overcome greed is to be generous. If, if your temptation is to lust, are you setting up ways to avoid seeing things or hearing things or things that lead you in that direction? Are you guarding your eyes? If your sin is to pride, are you finding ways to serve others, to be in a place where you don't get to say what happens, you have to do what you're told, to, to obediently serve others in a way that mortifies pride? Are, are you looking for scriptures that help you with the areas and give you wisdom for how do I how do I overcome this envy? How do I overcome this area of my life? And are you confessing to one another? Do you, do you, do you have a sister or a brother in the church that if you did something you know was harming you and you need someone to hold you accountable, do you have a brother or sister that you can go to and say, I need you to pray and ask me how I'm doing in this area. That's what it means for us to hold each other accountable. It's not that I'm, 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 that we rummage through each other's trash looking for some way we can, ooh, you did this. It's that I can go to somebody and say, I'm in a dangerous territory here, and I need to bring light into my life instead of hiding this before I make a mistake. I want you to know this is where I am. Do you have someone in the church you can do that with? Do you... Or, Another Christian, if they're, they're not with us, do you have someone in your life like that? If you're not, are you struggling? Are you standing? Are you waiting to be knocked down? The third area is just our drift from commitment. You know, it, it, it's just that my heart breaks to watch people who come and find joy and find commitment and, and are doing things and then realize that means some serious changes in my life. That means there's some struggle. It's really hard to continue to do what is right. It's really hard to be fervent and continue and endure when things are difficult. There's always times when we're excited, when things are going well, when we're new to the faith or Come back from, I come back from a conference or something, and there's excitement, but then there's real sin to forgive. There's real sin in my heart to struggle with. And honestly, the continual pursuit of Jesus, the continual walking on the narrow way, gets tiring at times. 
So what do we do to, to strengthen ourselves so that we stand and we don't drift away from the faith just because it gets tired and we get weary? Well, we find our rest. We find our joy. We, we lean into the means of grace. We come to Scripture to get our strength. We, we pray and we have fellowship with one another. It's others to encourage us when we don't feel like it. Looking for areas of people to listen to or, or prayers that just kind of renew us. And it, it's amazing what a good song can do to stir your heart once again. It's amazing what seeing the joy in another believer does to stir your heart again. Let us stir one another up to love and to good works. The question is, are you arming yourself? Are you standing in Christ? Good question to ask yourself, to see if you're doing this is, are you growing? Are you maturing? Are you the same as you were three years ago? Because if you are standing, you will grow. Here's the incredible irony. The only way to grow as a Christian is to stand still. The only way to make progress, the only way to move forward is to stand still because you stand in Christ. You stand in the gospel. And to depart from that is to leave the one who has the words of life. And so the only way to grow and mature is to stand firm in Jesus and you move deeper and deeper into the same truth that brings you into the faith. You deeper and deeper into that relationship with that same person you have a relationship with in Christ Jesus. You only move forward by standing still. And if you are standing, you will, haltingly stumbling, you will be maturing. You will be growing. You will be unlike you were earlier, years ago. Stand firm in Christ. Early in college, I had a video game. It was called Earthworm Jim. I am seeing absolutely no nods of acknowledgement. So let me describe it to you. One, graphics were not what they are today, but overlook that. The plot was Earthworm Jim. He was an earthworm, an ordinary earthworm, except seems to be, have some intelligence. What made Earthworm Jim incredible was he had an astronaut suit. And he got in it, and he was able to move around. He had arms and legs, and he could swing, and he was resistant to anything around him. It was a fun game. And then I realized after I heard, well, I didn't realize, I was told, after I heard something from the one who came up with the game, um, he was a Christian. And he said, isn't this a picture of what we are in Christ? We're nothing, but we put on Christ's righteousness and we're something. Isn't that pretty profound for somebody who would come up with such a game as Earthworm Jim? In other words, we're like Iron Man right? None of us are Superman. We're not strange visitors from another planet. None of us are Spider-Man. He was changed from the inside when a radioactive spider bit him. We are Iron Man. Rodney Stark is like any other person, though he has a lot of money, he's like any other person. He would be destroyed in a fight with all the monsters, but he puts on the suit of armor and he resists anything. He overcomes anything. So Christian, wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say to yourself, you hear the tune, I am Iron Man. You are armed in Jesus Christ. This is not a call to do all these things in your own strength and muster up your own will and to stand because you're doing a good job. You are called to arm yourself 
with the armor of God. In case you've never noticed this, it comes from Isaiah 59. Paul is writing to people and telling them to arm themselves, and hopefully they catch the prophecy of Isaiah from Isaiah 59 and 15. The Lord saw it. It was displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then in his own arm, he brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The armor of God is God's own armor. We wrap ourselves and clothe ourselves in his righteousness and his strength and his grace so that we stand against whatever we face. Would you please stand and let us state what we believe through the words of the Apostles' Creed.